Renters and mortgage payers across the country are being crushed by the high cost of housing. And this is perhaps most pronounced among young people. A new investigation by the New York Times details how Generation Z is routinely paying the majority, not 30%, not 40%, but the majority of their income in rent. And at the same time, homelessness is rapidly increasing, according to recent surveys in the Wall Street Journal. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's rdwolff.com. Richard Wolff, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. I'm very glad to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm looking at the New York Times headline, Gen Z can't afford the rent. Pretty straightforward. Gen Zers have been elected to Congress. They have upset big dairy. They refuse to believe that it's too late to curb the effects of climate change with the refrain, OK, Doomer, a play on OK, Boomer. But there's something that many Gen Zers feel is not within their realm of possibility owning a home. I'm reading, Richard, from the New York Times. Again, you know, the old maxim that we were told, it's actually not a very sort of satisfiable maxim, but the idea that you shouldn't pay more than 30% of your income or one third of your income for rent if you want to make it, if you want to survive. This article and this survey shows that Gen Z, meaning younger adults who have just coming into the workforce, are paying not even 50%, more than 50% of their income on rent. In some cases, in many cases, 75%. Again, the idea of then owning a home beyond reach. At the same time, Richard, and I'll just end here and let you start, a new survey by the Wall Street Journal using 300 different sources in the country trying to count the number of homeless says that the number that they've counted so far, with many sources not yet reporting back to them, is 577,000 people who are homeless. That, of course, is larger than the population of Washington, D.C. It's probably a big undercount, but that number has gone up by 11%, 11% just in the last year. Again, here we are in the richest country in the world. That's what we're always told. This is the richest country in the world. It's certainly the biggest economy in the world, and people can't afford to live. Yes, it's, it's an amazing reality. 
It is a testimony to an economy that has failed to do what is demanded of any economy. I mean, for thousands of years, human beings have judged the adequacy, the acceptability of an economic system according to how well it provides for the food, clothing, and shelter of the people in the society surrounding that economy. I mean, that's what it's for. We organize the production of goods and services in such a way as to meet our needs. And the basic human needs, not the only ones, but the basic human needs for food, clothing, and shelter are right at the top of the list. If an economy works, it's taken care of those things And if it hasn't taken care of those things, then it's a broken and unacceptable system that ought to be changed for one that works better. When you say that we have 500,000 counted so far of homeless people, clearly the system has failed to provide them with adequate shelter, with a home. But the problem is much bigger than that. Let me explain, and then we'll look into why we have this situation. Here's some samples of why it's an inadequate number, that 500,000. It doesn't count the number of people who are living double, tripled up. Many young people particularly, but people of all ages, are now having to move into other people's apartments. They are not strictly counted as homeless, but they are. They don't have home of their own. They don't have the square footage that we know are necessary for a person to have a decent life. What they're doing is sharing the bedroom, the bathroom, the living room, the kitchen with one, two, three, four, who knows how many people. The highest number of people in American history at this point are living with their parents, even though they are adults, even though in previous generations they would have moved out by now from the home in which they grew up. They're not counted as homeless, but they kind of are. Now about that number you quoted, you're right. 30% is what the standard notion is, is that has how much you ought to pay for housing. But this is not really about housing. It's about the fact that you need the other 70% to properly clothe yourself, feed yourself, be able to acquire medical care, be able to do the transportation to and from your job, to be able to get an education, to get a job. In other words, all your other expenses. Homelessness doesn't count the fact that if you're paying 40, 50, 60, or even 70% of your income for housing, you are being starved, literally, from all the other things that you need to have a decent life. Because your housing is costing you too large a share of your income. And now let's talk about the secondary effects. My wife is a psychotherapist. I've learned from the stories she tells me. 
of what psychological problems arise when young people cannot separate from their parents in part to become their own people, to have an adult relationship with your parents. It often is necessary to live somewhere else. They can't do it, and this produces tensions, struggles, fights, bitternesses that carry out the rest of your life. Where is the counting of that consequence of inadequate housing? What about the problems for children when there isn't enough space for parents and children to have some kind of way of living together and yet having something of their own? Psychology is full of those kinds of problems. In short, there are enormous social consequences, terrible ones, that spread out from the failure to provide housing. Now, we live in a capitalist economic system, and the way that works, as everyone knows, is employers hire workers, and they pay the workers a wage. And employers in the housing business produce the apartments and the homes to which they attach a price. So it comes down to the following, the analysis of the economics of housing. Is the money that employers as a class pay to workers sufficient for those workers as a class to afford the housing that the housing employers produce and sell on the market? And what the answer is, is what Brian began this program with. Either the employers aren't paying folks enough to afford an apartment, or they're charging too much for that apartment given what they pay their workers. They're doing one or the other or both. That's why we have an inadequate housing program. Guess what? It comes back to capitalists. And to explain why there is this inadequate relationship between the wages workers earn and the prices they are charged for a room, for shelter, for an apartment, the answer is profit. The employers in the housing business are in it to make money. They're not in it to provide housing to the people of a society. They don't accept any such responsibility. They're in it to make profit. They're only going to build an apartment if they can charge enough to profit from doing so. So they won't build them and they won't charge for them anything that doesn't bring them a profit. Just like they won't hire workers and pay them wages unless doing so brings them a profit. So now we know why we have the inadequate relationship between the income people earn and the cost of proper housing. The answer is profit is the objective of the people who pay wages and profit is the objective of the people who set the prices for homes for apartments. And profit has dictated that there are millions of people who can't afford any housing, and there are millions more who cannot afford an apartment without squeezing their budget for food, education, medical care, and all the other necessities of life. In short, homelessness, 
the housing problem are a direct indictment that the capitalist system does not work. Richard, I'm talking to you from New York City. I know you live in New York City. There's an article that just came out in the New York Times, August 15th, 2023. The headline is, a private equity firm might be your next landlord. And then the subtitle, investment firms are buying smaller buildings in the boroughs from families and smaller landlords. Some tenants are wary. I want to read a little bit to you from this new article just out. In New York City, debates over affordability often center on the proliferation of opulent high-rise developments. But in the boroughs, meaning outside of Manhattan, Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Staten Island, deep-pocketed investors are buying up hundreds of smaller buildings, prompting a new set of concerns in the city's deepening housing crisis. Over the past few years, private equity firms have quietly spent hundreds of millions of dollars buying apartments in neighborhoods like Bushwick, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and Ridgewood in Queens. Private equity firms, which typically invest money on behalf of pension funds, endowments, or other large sources of wealth, focus on assets like business or housing that they can buy relatively cheaply but that have big profit potential. Their expansion into the housing market across the nation has prompted scrutiny, I'm sure that'll be tough, in Congress about whether the trend is amplifying America's affordability problems. You know, Richard, we actually don't need a congressional investigation or congressional scrutiny about that one. Here's another one. Here's another piece of information, everybody. And Richard, I'll ask you to talk about both private equity, the fact that Gen Z can't pay the rent, and also homelessness. Here's an article that came out, a study that came out 10 months ago, again, about New York City. Yes, where Wall Street is, where these equity firms are set up, where people, where the billionaires are and where so much money is concentrated. New York City, here's the headline. New research finds 104,000 New York City public school students were homeless last year. Get that? 104,000. A New York Times article explores new data on homelessness among New York City public school students. The data reveal that 104,000 students in New York City experienced homelessness during the last school year and that the number of students in temporary housing grew by 3% during the prior year. That doesn't mean that these kids are homeless, Richard, all year round, but they lost the place they lived sometime during the school year. They were made homeless during the school year. Some of them are perennially homeless. Many of them are living in shelters. Some of them maybe moved in with an aunt or an uncle or grandparents. Maybe some of them were lucky enough that their actual mother or father or parents or parent was able to find another place after they experienced homelessness. But here you have these sort of system where private equity, people who don't give a damn about tenants or anybody or anything except the bottom line, buying up all of the affordable housing in the boroughs now. Manhattan's already off the charts, basically unaffordable. And by the way, everybody, when I first moved to New York City a long time ago in the early 70s, housing was affordable because the tenants movement, the tenants' rights in New York City were strong because the left was strong in New York. And my first apartment at 22nd Street and 8th Avenue, a two-bedroom apartment, was $90. 
All of that was wiped away by the counter-revolution carried out by the landlords and the developers and now equity firms. That's why, Richard, we are where we are. This is not natural. This is not God-given. There's no divine sort of mandate that this has to be this system. But that's where we are. Yeah, I think people should understand that when the system makes the owning of a home impossible, when the average person's income is such that he or she cannot rent an apartment and for sure cannot aspire to buy a home, where are they going to get the money for the down payment? How, given their income, could they carry the mortgage price of everything? You are driving a larger and larger number of Americans into apartments. And in order to make the apartment profitable, you want to jack up its price. So the building slows down and you get less building to maintain, more rent you can charge per apartment. And now it becomes housing is profitable. If you can control the supply to make it less than the demand people have, which literally means fewer homes than people have need for, then you can make the money. In other words, capitalism incentivizes the control of the market in order to maximize profit, because that's what the system rewards. That's who wins the prize, the one who grows fastest because he's gotten the biggest profit. And so you see these pools of money beginning to realize that we can manipulate housing. We can go into a place like New York, which has a fixed boundary. This is the edge of the city. If you want to live in this city, you got to live here. It's a limited space. There's millions of people who need to come and work in New York City, and they're not going to get paid the kind of wage that will allow them fill in the blank. And so we have a situation where you can profitably control the relationship between supply and demand. The minute the hedge funds and the equity funds and the investment funds, the minute they see that situation, they're in on it like flies to the garbage. They go there because these are manipulable situations. They can make a profit. That's what they see. That's what they're in business to do. That's the way capitalism sets up the management of wealth. Rich corporations, rich families, rich institutions give their money to hedge funds to do exactly this. Maximize the return. Go find a place where you can get in on the ground floor cheaply and do whatever is necessary. Control the supply and demand is really what we're talking about to make a maximum fat profit that can reward the rich people who've entrusted their money to you for precisely that purpose. The fact that it means we have millions of homeless, millions of people crowded with their parents, with other people spending too much and being unable to afford it. Think about those 100,000 children you mentioned whose education already because of their poverty, minimal, now being interrupted once or twice or three times a year. We're going to give up. Their education isn't going to happen. They're going to be a problem for themselves, their families, and their communities for the rest of their lives. 
This is a system literally shooting itself in the foot. But we live in this crazy system. We permit it to go on. A little reform here, a little rule there, even a big reform. I, for example, favor rent control, which we have had here in New York for many decades. But it is not the federal program it needs to be. And it's not even a solution. It just limits the amount of squeezing of people that the profit-driven system forces on us. Look, sooner or later, and this is the appropriate message, I think, for something that calls itself the socialist program. It is the capitalist system that incentivizes what we are observing and what the New York Times writes about. This is not about a greedy landlord, it's not which we have. And it's not about a greedy hedge fund operator, which we also have. It's about a system that rewards them by giving them lots of money because they successfully limit the supply of housing so that they can charge a fortune for those who can get into it. The system rewards them for behavior which we're here discussing the horrible social consequences. Well, when an economic system incentivizes people to do something bad for society, that's when that system has outlived whatever usefulness it ever had. Richard, when you when you look through history, say since the French Revolution that began in 1789, the revolutions happened not because I'm a Marxist and a socialist, but I'm not a determinist. There's lots of things that people did, decisions people made, mistakes that the ruling class and the Aung San regime committed that creates circumstances which over time leads to these rare events, revolutions. And one of the things that you notice about all of the different revolutions is that the existing ruling class at that time, prior to the revolution, didn't do the things that it actually could do to alleviate the things that were driving people into the streets. Like there were decisions made not to make concessions or not to make adjustments in the system that would have prevented the revolution. So in a way, it's the failure of the old system to adjust to the righteous demands of people and do what should be done and could be done but won't be done because of their willfulness or because profit is so strong with the old system that they don't want to make any changes. I'm thinking about that because what you're talking about, in this, the richest country in the world, these things are achievable. You've talked on this show before about social housing. If we look at Vienna, Austria, a capitalist country, or Singapore, where the majority of housing is called social housing, very nice, what people in the United States would consider middle-class housing. It's social housing, meaning it's public. It's a public option, and the majority of people live in these apartments They don't really want to leave the apartments because they're so good. And now even right-wing governments, should they take over in, say, in Austria, nobody will mess with social housing because everybody thinks about social housing the way, let's say, Americans think about social security. is like, don't mess with my social security. You know, expand it, fine, but don't try to take it away or else. I'm saying this because when we're in a situation where, say, in Denver, according to this new report, the increase in homelessness is 32% in a year. 
a 32% increase in homelessness, which means that the people before you're living on the street, you are already doubled up with your parents or your grandparents. It's not like straight to the street. It's usually a process and it involves whole families. You know, when you think of the vast resources in society, it could be remedied, but it won't be remedied almost without revolution, even though it could be because there's not the will, there's not the, the leadership, And there's not the willingness to stand up to those sectors, those institutions like equity firms that are making money hand over fist and incentivizing this system. So there's the lack of will, which means it has to come and will eventually come from the grassroots because those who have the authority to do something like Congress won't use it. Anyway, I know that's a whole mouthful, but I want to I want to put this looming existential crisis for millions of families into some kind of historical perspective. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right to point to the political explosion that is building in this society as exemplified in housing. Maybe what we have to see is the beginning of a recognition. Uh, there are many uh, movements of people living in the street. There are movements to develop public housing, subsidized housing, rent control. There are movements all over the United States and in other parts of the world, too, to get all this. But maybe we're going to have to see, for example, and I'm just pulling this out of the hat, an awareness, a movement that says simply to the American people, here we have, let's say, use that number from before, 500,000 homeless people. And here's an inventory of the number of apartments and homes right now that are vacant and have been vacant, let's say, for at least six weeks or more. And let's suppose, just hypothetically, that it was another 500,000. Okay, then the question is raised, on what grounds, human relationship grounds, do we force half a million people to live on the street, abort their children's education, and all the rest, if we actually possess all the apartments needed for these people to be housed. There is no excuse. And let's then imagine the next step, that instead of waiting, that the movement organizes the homeless to become squatters in and on the available apartments because the right to a home is part of what a society that calls itself decent and democratic owes its people. At that point, you're going to see a scrambling in which all of the resources of the people who run this society are going to be looked at and they're going to be told, get busy, do something, because this could get out of hand. This could become a movement, not just about housing. This could become a movement about a dozen other things that are similarly manipulated in terms of profiting and therefore denied to people who need them. And so I think what we're saying, and we might as well say it out loud, is that as Americans become more and more aware, as they read articles like the ones you quoted from the New York Times, The next logical step will occur in millions of people's minds. We have to take some action. We have to make it clear we are not willing to go another 25 years periodically reading more articles just like that one telling us what we're living through as an unbearable, inappropriate, unjust allocation of resources. 
You know, Jeffrey Bezos figures out how to have one $50 million mansion after another. He owns them all, and therefore most of them are empty most of the time. What kind of a society allows him to do that, rewards him, gives him more money than creases to do it over and over again, literally down the block from where the homeless people are sleeping under the scaffolding of a construction site. This is a society that is doing more and more of that, and it is not a sustainable way of organizing society. Richard, I want to leave our audience with one or two facts, but they're part of one continuum of fact to speak directly to what you're saying. According to another report that I found in United Way, there are 16 million vacant homes or apartments in the United States, 16 million. The United Way says there are, quote, over 580,000 Americans experiencing homelessness right now. This is a recent report. That means there are currently 28 vacant homes for every one person experiencing homelessness in the United States. Amazing set of numbers. Anyway, I invite the audience to do its own research. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. If you want to show your support for this program, become a patron. Go to The Socialist Program. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and become a subscriber today. Richard Wolf joins us every week. Thanks. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 